From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center, and by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Funding is critical for research, and finding the right source of funding is key. Today we are joined by Dr. Katarina Stamoulis, Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and Computation Neuroscientist. Dr. Stamoulis joins us for our course director series where she discusses her own experience obtaining funding outside of the National Institutes of Health. Hi, Dr. Stamoulis. Welcome to the show. It's good to see you. Thank you. So you are currently a computation neuroscientist and associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Could you briefly walk us through your career path and kind of what got you to where you are today? Sure. So my career path is very windy. I started as a mathematician. I loved math and I was an undergraduate and graduate student at MIT. And my education was in engineering and math. But then when I got my PhD, I got interested in, um, in physics and kind of applied physics. I ended up doing a PhD studying the underwater sound under the ice cap in the Central Arctic. Oh, wow. So completely different things, unrelated neuroscience. So I'd never taken a neuroscience course. My path was completely different, but I, I learned tools and techniques and statistics and math and signal analysis, which ended up being very useful. After that, I spent my, the first seven years of my career kind of like in that space mm-hmm. and studying different environments, the sound, sounds in different underwater environments, it was shallow water versus deep water in the Arctic. And it, this was early 2000, so around 2004, I felt that there was exciting research and a career elsewhere. Hmm. And the reason was that on one hand, the area I was in is very classical, kind of an area of applied physics and engineering. And, and although it's very exciting and interesting problems, a lot, of, a lot of kind of the fundamentals have been solved before. So some of these problems, it seemed to me at least, and I could be wrong, but that was my perception that it was a very saturated field in some way. Mm. At the same time, you had this really scientific explosion of ideas and creativity and tools and methods in neuroscience, which is a field that combines classical biology with computation, with psychology, with cognitive neuroscience systems. So it was also a time that a lot of other quantitative scientists, just like myself, with the same similar backgrounds, were shifting towards that field. So new modalities for measuring the brain had just come out a few years before, and there was a need for methodologies for for people who bring a very quantitative background, but also novel methods and approaches for solving some very complicated problems. 
And that seemed like a very exciting field. And I switched, but I had to become a postdoc again yeah. <laughs> and go and get trained in neuroscience. And that was a transition because I had been a professional for now seven years after my, my last postdoc. And I did. I came back to MIT and I trained in computational neuroscience. And I was very fortunate to work with a professor who was willing to take somebody as a postdoc like myself who had no experience in neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And yet I had this expertise in all the techniques that you needed to analyze the very complex brain data. And that was how it all started. Then I did a fellowship at the School of Public Health in statistics. And I also there had a, the opportunity to work with a wonderful professor. Uh, her name is Rebecca Betensky, who is now mm -hmm. in New York. But then she introduced me to Harvard Medical School and to biomedicine. And, 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 and that's it. That's, I've, I've, been, I've been here ever since. That is amazing. So for those who might not be familiar, what does a computational neuroscientist do? So our work focuses on, on one side, analyzing data. Mm -hmm. So developing tools for analyzing data, brain data, whether it is from single cells or brain waves from the human brain, etc. And for others, it's more mathematical modeling, trying to understand how the brain functions, how individual cells talk to each other, individual neurons and their ensembles. Mm -hmm. So it's all about tools, development of methodologies, models, and ability to extract information from all these incredibly rich signals that come from the brain and make sense of them, make some biological inference from them. Mm. Thank you for that. So you lead the computational neuroscience lab at Boston Children's Hospital. Yeah. What are some projects you are working on? Oh, we have an array of projects. So in the last probably four years, we have been fortunate to be supported by one of the um, large initiatives at the National Science Foundation. And that initiative is called Harnessing the Data Revolution. Hmm. And it's really about bringing people together to solve very complex problems in, in domain science. Mm -hmm. So my lab has been involved particularly with projects that focus on the adolescent brain, brain development and the adolescent brain, but taking a, a really a big data approach and harnessing the availability of large resources, national level resources, in order to be able to understand how our world or the adolescent world that changes so in so, such profound ways from mm -hmm. early adolescence to young adulthood, how does that impact how the brain is wired? In adolescence, mm -hmm. the brain undergoes a lot of changes and how the different factors like sleep and physical exercise, but also other more specific factors such as parents and family and uh, experiences and how do all these factors together shape the wiring of the adolescent brain? Hmm. Can I ask a bit more about that and maybe about some of these projects? And this is a, a little offline from what we talked about, but to what end? Kind of why are you looking at the wiring of the adolescent brain? And yeah, so adolescence is a, a very complex period of development where the human undergoes a lot of physical changes as well, hormonal changes, uh, mental health changes, cognitive sure. changes. 
And what happens in adolescence can very well impact what happens throughout the lifespan. Right. So if the brain if the brain gets miswired because the adolescent has some negative experiences or is affected by all sorts of different risk factors, that miswiring can follow them for the rest of their life and can impact their mental health, can impact their ability to make decisions, their cognitive, kind of like this high-level cognitive processes, such as cognitive control and executive function. And there is research in so many labs just showing how important some of these factors that adolescents don't think too much about, such as sleep, such as going out and exercising, can affect that wiring in very profound ways and, mm. and you know, in very serious ways for the rest of their cognitive and mental health. Mm. So I'm going to switch gears just a little bit, but still kind of tangential as you talk about getting grant funding for these different projects you're working on. As the course director for our grant funding for researchers certificate program, and our non-NIH government funding agencies course. Can you talk a little bit about the purpose of each of those courses and really the course and then the program? So for the non-NIH federal agency program, the goal of the course is to introduce investigators to what else is available in terms of federal agencies beyond the NIH. Everybody kind of like most of, of people in our community, their first agency to go to for their research Mm -hmm. is the NIH. But I can speak from a personal experience. The NIH is definitely supporting all sorts of different types of research, including computational, but there are some problems that are best supported by a different agency. So for example, my work fits much better at the National Science Foundation than at the NIH. For years, I I kept trying with NIH, and of course, I was successful on some level. But when I started looking at the, for example, at what is available at the National Science Foundation, these kind of uh, uh, programs that deal with, let's say, the data revolution or dealing with these very cross-disciplinary collaborations that bring in together the domain scientists and uh, physicists and engineers and computer scientists together, those kind of teams are better supported by different types of agencies. And on the other end of the spectrum is this very clinically kind of patient-oriented research that may be better supported by, uh, by agencies such as PCORI or this very large kind of really high risk, high reward projects mm-hmm. that are better supported by the Department of Defense, like DARPA or these kind of agencies. Sure. So that's the purpose of that course. Now, the grant certificate course aims to be comprehensive, to bring all these courses that are available, these wonderful courses that are available through the Harvard Catalyst and really systematically educate the interested investigator of what is out there in terms of the NIH, how to, the, the NSF and the other federal agencies, foundations, mm-hmm. industry, which is applicable to many people. It may not be applicable to me, but to clinician scientists, it's really sure. applicable. And in addition, it has this very valuable component of techniques. How mm-hmm. do you write a grant? It provides a very comprehensive 
perspective of grant writing and the types of available agencies and opportunities for the investigator to consider as they build their careers, because one's mm -hmm. career has to be diverse in terms of where they go for funding, what types of projects they are involved in, sure. that is helpful to their advancement. And for that, you need to, you need to be aware of what is out there. So you talked uh, a bit about your own experience with obtaining funding from different agencies, but could you speak a little more about the funding you received from government agencies outside of the NIH and kind of your experience with that? So when I was much younger and outside this field, I used to be funded by the Department of Defense because the type of work that I did was aligned with their goals. So I knew uh, when I came here, I, I knew a little bit about that process and how you go about uh, getting funding from them. But mm -hmm. as I mentioned in the last decade or a little less, I found out that the National Science Foundation with the many programs that it has was a good fit for my research. Mm -hmm. Again, because I come from a field that is a little bit, bit different than the traditional neuroscientist, I sometimes look at the NSF as a place where I can find that diversity of programs, of mm -hmm. a program that combines computation and would be open to somebody like me suggesting a project that is heavy on the computation, but it's also there is a component on brain science as well. These types of projects are best funded by other places than NIH. Mm -hmm. So that has been my experience. I have a little bit of experience with foundations as well. And of course, with the NIH, but that has been the process. Perfect. How has collaborating with individuals outside of computation science impacted your funding opportunities? So I collaborate with clinicians too. Mm -hmm. Part of my work is basically in computational neuroscience, asking very basic questions about neuroscience and kind of how the brain works and how this supports cognitive function and develops, etc. But part of my work uh, focuses on disorders. And there I have to collaborate with clinicians. And definitely in the last over a decade, my work has focused on studying epilepsy, which is also a field that involves a lot of computational science, but in a clinic, in a more clinical research kind of setting. And there I routinely collaborate with clinicians who appreciate what I do and the perspective that I bring into this particular field. So there, there is a need from them to better understand, let's say, the epileptic brain and what causes seizures. It is very complicated and difficult to understand disorder. And at the same time, the problems are really interesting on my side. I'm interested in the clinical aspect of it as well. So that collaboration is kind of straightforward for sure on both sides. Bringing teams of scientists that may not be neuroscientists together, that is, for me, it seems easy because I come from a field other than neuroscience. But in general, it's not always that easy because one has to understand the other's language and also kind of appreciate what they bring to the table. Each person brings the, a, their wonderful background and expertise right. to the table, and then bringing them together requires kind of like this, this baseline mutual respect and appreciation for each other's contribution to a project. Mm. Do you think that by having these um, teams that are made up of different experts, it gives it kind of opens the door to more funding, kind of in your opinion and maybe in your experience. Absolutely. Okay. I think it opens because it opens the door 
to solving really complicated problems mm -hmm. that one cannot solve on their own, even if they are somebody who combines expertises. You right. need a team. A team brings a perspective. So I think more and more funding agencies nowadays, I don't know too much about what NIH is doing kind of like purposely for that, but definitely the National Science Foundation has specific calls and opportunities that require you to have mm. teams. You can't apply if you don't have a team. And mm. I love that because this is the only way that we can solve really difficult problems. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. For people who are listening, if you could give them kind of one golden nugget, one piece of advice that you may give them as they think about exploring opportunities for funding and exploring these different agencies that you've talked about, what may you tell them? I would say think outside the box. Mm. At first glance, maybe one's project may not fit in an agency and they may say, oh, okay, well, this is not for me. And it's true, it may not be for them in that particular form. Mm. But if you take a project and think about it more globally, more large scale, more ambitiously, mm -hmm. then one can discover that, hey, here is there is a piece that could be tackled by one of my colleagues. Oh, I could study this and here is I'm bringing this, but somebody else may bring another part. Mm -hmm. and, and this kind of like builds a bigger project and more exciting project. So I would say think outside the box and kind of think of how maybe you can parcelate your, pro your project into different parts. How can you expand it to include some other component that would be desirable to the agency, but also appealing to a collaborator. So I think be flexible and think about outside the box. I like it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community and beyond. We are always looking to connect and collaborate with the research community and would like to hear from you. Please feel free to email us at onlineeducation.catalyst.harvard.edu to inquire about being a guest on the podcast.